So I have been really looking forward to today's interview. I've been arguing for a long time that uh, atheists are basically trapped in the 20th century, that their philosophy has become scientifically obsolete. And I just read a terrific book called The Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen C. Meyer. Uh, Stephen Meyer directs the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. He's a former geophysicist. He's written bestsellers, Darwin's Doubt, uh, the Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design, Signature in the Cell, and his latest uh, is the USA Today bestseller, Return of the God Hypothesis, which I read. I just think it's terrific. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for having me on. It's a great privilege. It is... Uh, it's it's a ter- it's a terrific book. It really is. It's it's rigorous. It's not uh, tendentious. You don't just say what you want to be true. You make your arguments really clearly. I, I want to talk before we get into the argument. The s- subtitle of the book is "The Three Discoveries That Have Brought the God Hypothesis Back into Play." And before we get to those three discoveries, the fact that you call it the return of the God Hypothesis suggests that there was a time when maybe it was it made more sense not to hypothesize that God uh, had created the world or that God was at work in the world. Why is that the case? Yeah, you mentioned that uh, atheism is uh, stuck in the 20th century. I think it's actually stuck in the late 19th century, which is when the uh, <laughs> uh, worldview known as scientific materialism was really formulated. There were the, you know, the great scientific materialists were Darwin, who told us where we came from, uh, Marx, who gave us a utopian vision of where we were going, Freud, who uh, a little bit later told us what to do about the human condition, about human guilt. And between these great materialistic thinkers, all of whom claim to be basing their ideas on science, um, a kind of comprehensive worldview was formulated that answered all the great questions that Judeo-Christian religion had always addressed. And uh, and this became kind of the default way of thinking through much of the 20th century uh, among elite intellectuals, and it had it it, it had a, I think uh, some tragic consequences because it was also the the mode of thinking that underlay the great totalitarian regimes of the 20th century as well. Um, uh, both Marxism and National Socialism derived tremendous amount of support from a, basically materialistic assumptions, in some cases even directly going back to Darwinian thinking. So the re- the title, Return of the God Hypothesis, invites a kind of uh, story, obviously, because to say there, it's returning was to say that the, the God Hypothesis as the framework for doing science was lost, but that implies that Previous to that, it was also the dominant way of thinking about the natural world, as indeed it was during the period that historians call the scientific revolution. Yeah, this, I mean, the scientific revolution, you make you make this argument very clearly in the book, uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis, that it's really inspired in some way by Christian, specifically Christian thought. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think so. And also also Judeo-Christian thought, because during the period of the scientific revolution, and that's dated variously by historians of science between, say, 1500 and 1700 or 1750, some go back and see very strong influences that gave rise to modern science in the late medieval period as well, going back as far as 1300 or so in the great universities like University of Paris and Oxford. Um, but um, during this period of late medieval Catholic thought and uh, the, uh, the period of the Reformation, uh, Christian thinkers were rediscovering the Hebrew Bible, and there were a number of concepts that were uh, implicit in it in the biblical worldview that were friendly to the rise of science. The biggest one was the idea of intelligibility, the idea that nature could be understood because it by the human mind because 
it, uh, it, it expressed a rationality that was the product of the divine mind, and that that same divine creator who had built rationality and design and order into nature had also designed our minds in a way that allowed us to understand that order and design. And so there's a principle of correspondence between the reason that was built into nature and the reason within us. And it, it, it kind of goes beyond the Greek idea of reason, too, because there's a certain, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's, I, I don't want to call it randomness, but freedom in God's work. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, so it's up to us to That's, go out and look at it. That was a huge concept. Uh, the historians of science call that contingency, the idea that nature has an order that's built into it, but it's an order that's contingent upon the will of the creator. It could have been otherwise, just as there are many different ways to make a timepiece or a clock, um, all of which would require a, a kind of orderly arrangement of the gears and parts that make timekeeping possible. There are many different ways that God could have ordered the universe, and it's up to us not to uh, deduce that order from some first principles or from some in intuitions that we have about how nature ought to be, but rather it's important to go out and look and see how nature actually is. The Greeks were inclined to a kind of armchair philosophizing about nature, and during the period of the scientific revolution, because of this idea of the radical contingency of nature upon the will of God, this was a, a consequence of the recovery of the doctrine of creation. Nature is orderly, but it's orderly because God chose to make it a certain way. And Robert Boyle put it very succinctly. He said, it's not the job of the natural philosopher, which was what people called scientists at the time, to uh, deduce what God must have done. But instead, it's the job of the scientist to go out and look and see what God actually did do. So in addition to uh, having a confidence that there's an intelligibility in nature, there was also the idea that, um, that nature... Um, needed to be studied in an empirical way. We needed to investigate it by looking and seeing and measuring. And, and this gave rise to an empirical form of science rather than deductive, as I mentioned, armchair philosophizing, which characterized a lot of Greek thought. So so let's talk about these three discoveries that kind of, I mean, it, it feels like it might have been natural after Newton to just assume that the clockwork universe was going to unfold, uh, that was just very uh, easy to understand. But in fact, things turned out to be a little weirder than that. And one of the first things you talk about is the idea of a big bang, which really does make things complicated. Can you describe, first of all, where did that idea come from and, and why does it make things complicated for scientific materials? Well, there's a, there's a, a Princeton physicist uh, from the 1960s, Robert Dickey, who said that the, an infinitely old universe would relieve us of the necessity of understanding the origin of matter at any finite time in the past. And uh, it, it coming out of the late 19th century, Physicists assumed that the universe was infinitely old, that it was e essentially eternal and self-existent and self-organizing. And, um, and so there that made possible this great materialistic synthesis at the end of the 19th century. We could explain the origin of everything all the way back to the elementary particles, and the elementary particles and energy had been here from eternity past. And so matter and energy were essentially had godlike powers. They they were the eternal self-existent thing that replaced the idea of an eternal self-existent creator in, in, in Christianity and Judaism. Um, so the surprising, shocking discovery of the early 20th century was that, in fact, the mater material universe, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy seems, as best we can tell, to have had a beginning. 
And this was first, uh, the, the first inklings of this came in the 1920s in observational astronomy as uh, figures like Ed, Edwin Hubble uh, were able to establish that the light coming from distant galaxies was being stretched out as if the distant galaxies were receding away from us. And um, Hubble's graduate student, uh, Alan Sandage and others were able to verify that this was the case in, in all quadrants of the night sky. And the picture that emerged from this was of an expanding universe outward from a kind of starting point, a, a beginning. And uh, this was a kind of shocking discovery because everyone expected that the universe was eternal and self-existent. Einstein didn't like it at first, though his own theory of gravity called general rel relativity implied the same thing. He later did come around, though, when, the, when confronted with the evidence. And then you, you have this uh, idea, I think you call it the Goldilocks universe. Is that your term for it? That um, it's not just that it, it starts, but it starts with some really amazing coincidences uh, wrapped into its into its very organization. Yeah, physicists call this the fine-tuning, and some physicists refer to our universe now as a Goldilocks universe. The basic parameters of the universe, the, the force that drives the expansion, the force of gravity, the force of electromagnetism, the underlying uh, strong and weak nuclear forces, the, the masses of the elementary particles, the speed of light, many, many basic physical parameters fall within very narrow tolerances, such that if they were a little bit different, a little bit stronger or weaker or heavier or lighter, uh, the universe uh, would not be conducive to life. And the probabilities of associated with in these individual parameters, let alone the whole ensemble, are incredibly tiny. And yet there's no underlying physical uh, reason, theoretical or physical reason, as to why these parameters should be have the precise values that they do. And uh, and this is, this is known to physicists now as the problem of the fine-tuning, uh, and uh, many physicists, including Sir Fred Hoyle, who was initially a big skeptic of the Big Bang because of his atheism, came around to theism himself because of fine-tuning parameters that he discovered associated with the, uh, the, the necessary abundance of carbon in the universe, which is necessary to life. And uh, he was later quoted as saying that uh, a common-sense interpretation of the evidence suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology. So uh, in, or in order to make life possible. Uh, so this fine tuning suggested a fine tuner. Uh, there have been contrary uh, hypotheses, uh, su such as the multiverse that's being floated uh, now and sometimes makes it into popular movies. But one thing that's um, not commonly known about the multiverse, uh, and that's just the idea that there are billions of other universes out there, such that uh, somewhere, some universe would get lucky and have th those improbable parameters. Problem is all the mechanisms that physicists have proposed to explain where these other universes have come from have themselves required prior unexplained fine tuning, taking us right back to where we started. So the multiverse actually doesn't explain the fine tuning and fine tuning in our experience, whether we're talking about Swiss watches or internal combustion engines or sections of digital code is always an indicator of intelligence or the activity of mind. It's funny, these guys who are constantly citing uh, Occam's razor to say that things should be simple, make this argument of the multiverse, which is kind of like saying this just happens to be the card game in which I drew four aces in a, you know, seven times in a row. I mean, it just it, it seems a very complex way of thinking about things as opposed to just saying, well, maybe there's a creator. It's very convoluted and more more convoluted than I can describe in a short interview because there are two different uh, uh, systems of theoretical physics that have to be invoked to explain 
the the phenomena that this a single postulate of a transcendent intelligence can explain. You have to posit all these different uh, universes as well as all these different theoretical entities like multiple multi dimensions of space, strings, uh, inflaton fields, in order to explain the 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 one thing that a single hypothesis of a transcendent creator explains very simply. So it's not a parsimonious or simple explanation, the multiverse. The other, the final uh, of the three discoveries is this idea. It's it's kind of interesting because one of the guys who's supposed to be the four horsemen of the apocalypse of the new atheist is Richard Dawkins, an excellent writer, uh, obviously a brilliant man. And it's all about evolution for him. And evolution explains so much of where life comes from. <clears throat> but the, but the idea of a code of a, um, of a genetic code that creates intelligence has has caused some computer scientists to say that Darwinian absolute Darwinian evolution can't be right. Is that is that a is that a fair way? Well, to put abs- it? Am I getting absolutely. That right? I mean, it, and this is the huge discovery of late twentieth century science and biology, and that is that, that the foundation of life and even the simple, simplest living cells we find an exquisite realm of digital nanotechnology. It started with Watson and Crick in 1953 when they elucidated the double helix uh, structure of the DNA. Five years later, Crick formulated something he called the sequence hypothesis in which he <laughs> suggested that the chemical subunits along the interior of the DNA molecule are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language or the zeros and ones in a machine code or d- digital software that we would work with today. Richard Dawkins himself has acknowledged that DNA functions like a machine code. Bill Gates says it's uh, like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Um, and that's a highly suggestive uh, remark because we know from experience that software comes from programmers and that information, especially in a digital al- or alphabetic form, always comes from an intelligent source, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal or in a computer code. Information is the product of mind. And so the discovery of information at the foundation of life and even the simplest living cell, I've argued, is a powerful indicator of a designing intelligence playing a role in the origin and history of life. I have a question that I'd like to ask about quantum physics. I'm glad, since I have you here, I'll take advantage of the uh, of Let's your take presence. a walk on the wild uh, you know, side. Yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you touch on this in the later chapters of the book, but it's not one of your three uh, discoveries. But the idea in quantum, there is this idea in quantum physics that things are defined by our perception of them to some degree so that uh, we can't tell the location and velocity of, a, of something before it is observed. And once it's observed, it maintains uh, that position. Uh, we can't tell whether a light is a wave or a particle until it's observed. And then once it's observed, uh, it remains a wave or a particle, it seems. That sort of implies to me that consciousness comes before matter, that the words in the Bible that the earth was without form or void, was void and without form, and God said, let there be light, could almost be literally true, that there has to be some consciousness before there can be some element there. Is that is that yeah, many, completely uh, many wrong? Many philosophers have actually, you know, I think it, it's a very profound insight. Uh, my colleague George Gilder says that the heart of matter lies a mystery. You know, that you know we don't we don't perceive matter without a perceiver. And one of the, the reasons I brought up the quantum mechanics in this book was that there is a model of the origin of the universe known as quantum cosmology, which attempts to. Uh, appropriate the mathematics of quantum physics to explain how you could get a universe from literally nothing physical, 
But the problem with the appropriation of that mathematics is that it presupposes a mathematical structure to the universe before there's any matter. But mathematics is something, as one of the proponents of this idea uh, has acknowledged, mathematics is conceptual. It ex only exists in minds. So the attempt to explain the origin of the universe apart from the mind of God uh, using quantum mechanics has actually brought people back full circle to the need for a pre-existing mind, the very insight that you've just you've just shared. Oh, good. I'm glad I wasn't just making that up, because obviously I do not understand. I don't pretend to understand quantum mechanics, but uh, it seems like that to me. You know, you quote, you have this there's a remarkable oh, quote from Thomas. Oh, yeah, yeah I was just uh, interrupting with a, uh, a little bit, but uh, there's a, a, a terrific quote from Hawking about this very problem. He was one of the inventors of this quantum cosmology idea. But uh, in a moment of candor, he says, what puts fire in the equations that gives them a, a universe to describe? Math by itself is causally inert. It's only something that exists in a mind. We use math to structure things, to design things. But um, the, the whole attempt, it's, it's, it's really an ironic story because the, the evidence we have for the beginning of the universe seems to imply a cause that transcends matter, space, time, and energy. Before the beginning of matter, there is no matter to do the causing. And in virtue of that, Scientists have looked for some alternative to the God hypothesis. They've come up with this quantum cosmological model, but it too implies a prior unexplained uh, mental reality that is not material in order to explain the origin of the universe. So they come right back, I think, to the God hypothesis and the attempt to avoid it. Yeah, this brings me back to this really remarkable quote from Thomas Nagel, uh, who is a philosopher who wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos and made a big splash called Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False, got attacked by all kinds of people. But you quote Nagel. Nagel does not believe in God, and he came up with an alternative hypothesis to that. But he said, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't right it's just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right. It's that I hope there is no, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I, I was really struck by that because I felt that way about some of the things that Stephen Hawking used to say, that he was committed to this idea that there wasn't a God, that he was as committed as some religious people who know nothing but just what they believe. Why is that? Why aren't scientists open to what seems to me such a simple explanation uh, of the world we, as we actually know it scientifically? And there's so many different things to say about that, Andrew. Um, <laughs> first of all, that Nagel's candor is just so refreshing. And um, he he uh, went out on a limb to write some very nice things about some of the books advancing the theory of intelligent design, though he couldn't quite go that far himself. He was an atheist who was sort of experiencing cognitive dissonance, uh, understanding that neo-Darwinism and materialistic ideas did not account for the really fundamental uh, one of the fundamental things about our existence, which is the reality of consciousness, the reality of minds, we have them. So we know mind exists. And if you can't account for that, you have a worldview that is inadequate. Um, I think that, you know, part of the answer to the why can't science or why are scientists so wedded or many scientists so wedded to atheism? I think it's partly a kind of default way of thinking that we've inherited from the, the 19th century. And there's a sort of groupthink phenomena that is involved in any community of 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 uh, scholars or thinkers. And uh, but also, I think there's a natural human uh, resistance to the God hypothesis. On the one hand, we like we would like 
God to exist because we want to think about the possibility of a life after this life, about uh, significance. We don't want, want to think of ourselves as cosmic accidents. So we have a, a motivation to consider the God hypothesis. But none of us also, I think, instinctively like the accountability that comes with thinking about a, a transcendent intelligence who made us to function best in a certain way and that therefore there's a moral law and we may not be on the right side of that all the time. So there's a push-pull, I think, in every human being about whether we want or don't want God to exist. Um, what I tried to do in the book was to extricate ourselves from those motivational questions and issues and just look at what the evidence says. And uh, Dawkins is so helpful because he has this tremendous quote. He's great at forming, uh, framing issues, even though I disagree with his atheism. But he says, the universe has exactly the properties we should expect. If at bottom there's no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, materialism. And what I tried to show in the book is that there have been three major discoveries about biological, physical, and cosmological origins that are precisely what you wouldn't expect if uh, scientific materialism or scientific atheism were true. The universe had a beginning. It's been finely tuned from the beginning for life. And since the beginning, there have been big infusions or bursts of uh, digital information technology in our living, uh, in our biosphere that suggests a master programmer has been at work in life. None of these things were expected on the scientific atheist view of the late 19th century. And that's the view that we've inherited that's dominated the 20th. If you like science books, uh, this is a terrific one, The Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen C. Meyer. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for great questions. Good questions here. Upland, California, David. Hi, David. Dennis Prager. Uh, hi, Dennis. <clears throat> Long time listener from old uh, from religion on the line time. Great. Thank you for calling. Yeah. How do you respond to someone who says, uh, today, how do you interpret the scripture in the Old Testament that says that you take the disobedient children out of town and stone them? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's the, the classic example that I <clears throat> use to show the, the moral genius of the Torah, the first five books of, of the Old Testament, the that law was one of the greatest steps forward in the history of mankind because it was the first time in history parents were forbidden from killing their own children. That's the way to understand the law, since no Jewish child was ever taken and stoned by a court. The genius of the law was, and remember this is 3,000 years ago, the genius of the law was you can't harm your child. If you want to, you first take the child to a court, and then they will have a trial of your child. And since and, and if any a Jewish parent ever did, the court never executed a single child. What it did was it took the ability of parents to kill their children for family honor uh, or for religious reasons or what have you out of their hands forever. And we still to this day have honor killing of children. Yeah, and, and so you can understand how ingrained it was. Roman Roman parents could kill their children uh, if, if they, if for whatever reason. But the Jewish parent was forbidden by the by that law, and that's the way to understand it. So the law is not to um, it's not as a punishment to a disobedient children that uh, say two thousand years ago. It's more to protect the children. It is more to protect the children, while at the same time saying to the child, hey, if you really, really get bad, please know that on the books is the ability to stone you. 
<laughs> so it's on the books, but it was never practiced. And what it did was, as I said, is it took the ability of, of parents to kill their children out of their hands permanently. And I'm, I'm glad you asked. Those are the sorts of questions, among many others, that I do welcome. If you, there are things that trouble you, uh, with, in the biblical text. 1-8 Prager 776. By the way, in light of that, go to DennisPrager.com and get a sample of my CDs on, on the Torah, the first five books. Uh, I have about 300 of them. And uh, that is the way I teach it. It's relevance to, to, uh, to us in our time. It's, by the way, it's how I figured out my kids could argue with me because Abraham argued with God. If Abraham could argue with God, then my kids could argue with me. So there, I mean, just, there are hundreds and hundreds of those. DennisPrager.com has a listing of, uh, the many, many, many CDs that I have made on, uh, on the Bible.